The views and opinions expressed by the guests on this podcast are that of their own. In no way, shape, or form do they reflect the official policy or position of the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. Descended into the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack, a commercial diving podcast for divers by divers. Episode number six, Trapped Under the Sea, Deer Island. This episode, we will be joined by award-winning author Neil Swidey and co-host Ken Coleman. We will be talking about the 1999 Deer Island accident. Mr. Swidey will be sharing insight from his book, Trapped Under the Sea, which chronicles the story of the five divers that entered the 10-mile tunnel below the Boston Harbor. We will also have a frank and serious discussion about construction safety culture and how tragedies like this can be avoided in the future. This episode is dedicated to Billy Deuce and Tim Nordine, the two divers that lost their lives at Deer Island. Make sure to like and follow on Instagram at Bottom Dwellers DS, Facebook page, Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. We appreciate your support. Stand by. We're going to make it hot. All right. Well, another episode of the Bottom Dwellers podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Armando. We've got a co-host, uh, Kenny, today. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Yeah, for sure, man. Um, today's guest, we're going to have a uh, Neil Swidey on and, uh, he wrote the book Trapped Under the Sea. That's that's the uh that's definitely one of my favorite books. And uh if you guys don't know about it, it's related to the uh, Deer Island incident. Two divers ended up losing their lives on that one. Um so it's 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 a good book. It tells it how it is and and you know I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. I always recommend it to everyone, you know, that I meet if the opportunity arises. What did you think of the book, Kenny? Oh, yeah. The book was really good. Um, I was, you mentioned it was a diving, a book about diving and it's kind of sort of a book about diving in terms of, you know, the people who were involved were divers, but it's such a unique situation these guys were put in and, uh, to have this, you know, author lay out everything and all the details and what happened and what was involved was pretty impressive. And, uh, I definitely at some points just had to sit down, you know, put the book down and just yell. and like, what, <laughs> what is going on? You know, why is this going on? And, you know, he just, by the end of the book, you're just shaking your head at the situation and uh, yeah, really good read. So right. this project Deer Island was in Boston. Boston Harbor was one of the ugliest and dirtiest harbors in the country. It, it was pretty dirty. So they were mandated to uh, get it clean and clean it and clean it up. So they ended up building what was it? It was like a 12 mile tunnel, 10 mile, 10 mile under bedrock, you know, 25 foot diameter pipe, basically extending out into the bay with 55 risers at the end that would shoot all the stuff out into the open ocean. Pretty impressive. Yeah. So, I mean, it's definitely an engineering marvel, you know, and this is all underwater, obviously. So yeah, underwater, under bedrock, under everything. Yeah. It was, it was pretty crazy. Um, yeah. So what they ended up doing is that they, they, uh, the way they did it, of course, they obviously did it piece by piece and everything. And they had an air system in place. 
So this air system wasn't placed in the tunnel as they were working. And then once they got to the very end and they finished all the topside stuff for the most part, they decided to pull all the air system out and they left plugs in the diffuser pipes. Right. The risers. Yep. And the risers. So those plugs, they had to come out and unfortunately there was no air system in there. So it posed a lot of, a lot of problems and they had to engineer a way to kind of get them out. Yeah. So through using divers, they had to just make shift this <laughs> traveling system of air to get these guys down to the end. Cause there was no feasible oxygen down there. And the air system they had was, <laughs> you know, as you read the book, not up to par and kind of designed on, you know, one person's thoughts of what's needed and uh, yeah, untested, not ever used before. And it didn't do very well. So we don't want to give away too much of the book. If you haven't read it, you know, if, if you're one of those people that, Oh, you know, we, we don't want to some, spoil it for you. <laughs> Might but, be some spoiler uh, alerts in this one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's definitely a good read. You should read the book before listening to the rest of this podcast. Um, we are going to talk a little bit more about it, but just like Kenny said, it's one of those books where it's like, there's certain times where you're just pulling your hair out and you kind of see how this is going to go, where it's going to fail. And it's like, yeah, it's really hard to believe how a lot of this stuff, you know, passed. So again, spoiler alert, if you haven't read the book and you want to read the book, then uh, you should probably stop listening and then... Uh, <laughs> listen after you read the book but yeah like i said it kind of tripped me out that the whole air system that they used was a uh, untested you know oh right, here we go hey how's it going hey how are you mondo you're doing good i got a uh, kenny my buddy on here he's a uh, co-hosting hey co kenny today. how are you how you doing sir how are you doing nice to meet hey. you nice to meet you too so welcome to the bottom dwellers podcast it seems like everybody's doing podcasts and zoom meetings now <laughs> because of the pandemic we felt it was a good opportunity to to kind of you know a little hobby of ours to just reach as many divers as we can and. Uh, it's but, uh, a pleasure, great to great to be here. Yeah, but we do have a, a, a we've developed a decent following of a com commercial diver, so this is a commercial diving podcast. And um, the reason why we had you on, we kind of uh, started a little bit earlier and talked about your book Trapped Under the Sea. So you know, honored, and it's a privilege to 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 have you on. Again, big fan of the book. So Thanks. what have you been I doing really to keep yourself that. busy, Neil? Uh, uh, well, so I'm uh, continuing to write, and now I'm, I'm teaching full-time and running a journalism program at, at Brandeis University, a college near us in Boston. So, uh, uh, yeah, it's been kind of crazy during the pandemic, teaching uh, in person with masks and and distance with students joining some by zoom and some in person and then doing some writing as well. But, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here, you know, through the course of, uh, working on the, the book and learning about the world of commercial diving. I just, uh, I think you probably can tell from reading the book. I, I, I got an enormous amount of respect, uh, for, the people in your field and the, both the risks that you take for all of our benefit, but also the, the, uh, the calculated risks, you know, that nobody, despite the cowboy image out there, I think I found people who are very sensible and uh, practical about 
the kind of work that they're doing and very serious and locked in. So, you know, I, I loved being around divers because, uh, you know, they, they bust your balls and they're hilarious off the scene, but once, you know, once they're on a job, the, the good ones are really just kind of locked in and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and take a lot of pride in their work. So, uh, I, I really enjoyed my time, um, getting to know them and still keep in touch with, with, uh, a lot of them, including the, the, the guys at the center of the book. Mm. Well, well, that's great. Cause that's one of the questions that I wanted to ask you is how did you, you prepare to, to write this book? How did you decide to, to kind of pick a deer Island as a topic to, to get involved with? Were you on the crew and I mean, not on the crew, but did, did you go onto a dive crew to get some background on diving? You know, it's, it's, it's so interesting. So my job as a, um, a journalist who kind of, goes deep on uh, subjects is uh, I often go into a field that I know nothing about. Uh, and for me, it's all about curiosity and learning and um, and getting the opportunity to learn from other people, particularly people who are good at their jobs uh, and fun to be around. Uh, as you know, the, the Deer Island story is a tragedy. And so there was a lot of... Um, sadness around what happened here these were completely preventable deaths and uh and everyone who touched this uh story i think was really affected by it for for their lives so initially when i started looking into it which was 10 years after the incident had happened uh, which turned out to be a blessing in that way because nobody early on wanted to talk about it at all. In fact, 10 years after when I went to talk with everyone who had been part of it from every different angle of this project, uh, even then people were standoffish because, uh, you know, there's there's trauma associated with this and mm-hmm. tragedy. Uh, but uh, once I built the trust with them and they could see that I was serious and was going to put in the, the work and to learn, I think people really uh, responded in kind and really let me into their worlds, which I'm eternally grateful for. Um, but it's funny, one of the, the uh, Donald Hosford, Haas in, in the book, is as you know, uh, was not a guy to mince words. And uh, he's the first diver I got to know. And I said to him, I'm not a diver. Should I uh, learn about this? Should I go for uh, scuba training? He said, scuba, forget about that. What those guys do and, you know, Caribbean bathwater looking at starfish, that's nothing. Forget it. It's not even worth your time. So I didn't, you know, I decided to start it on scuba divers, you know, that's yeah. one of those commercial <laughs> divers, you know. Exactly. It was actually a relief because I could spend that time rather than doing that learning from everyone I could. And I spent time on job sites with lots of different divers and um, spent time in, in the homes with, uh, with all the key people and, um, and really got a sense in the extent that you could about kind of what makes them tick, what the motivations were for them, what the fears and concerns were, what the things that upset them. And uh, and got a sense of the rhythm and the cadence of the jobs as well. So I think that was much more beneficial than, you know, spending a time at the YMCA pool getting certified or going down to the Caribbean, uh, which, which would have been nice uh, to do. 
Yeah. And, and that's the thing that we've talked about on this podcast quite a bit too, is that um, being a commercial diver, it's, a, it's, it's a lifestyle where different breed of people, you know, you kind of mentioned scuba, you know, we, we look, I wouldn't say look down, you know, but they steal our jobs and this and that. And <laughs> that's kind of where that comes from. You know, I like to say I've been scuba diving since I was five, just to, I was scuba diving in my tub at five years old. I don't need to do it anymore. So <laughs> with little uh, floaties. Yeah. No, with a, yeah. With a tank. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think, I, uh, again, I got the sense, and I think most people, you probably get a sense of this as well. Most people outside of this fraternity have no idea what you do, um, and what's involved in it. Uh, but you know, you're doing some really, uh, complicated, uh, jobs that would be complicated above water. You're just doing them underwater. Uh, and in the case of, um, this job, of course, this was unlike any other uh, job that any of these experienced divers had done before, because you know the tunnel was was um, empty and uh, it was just completely starved of oxygen, and a complete ten mile long black hole uh, that at the end uh, was um, just the, the the most remote. Uh, kind of frightening place I think I can imagine while still being on earth and and uh, the thing that stuck with me I told you I start with curiosity was um, how did it get to this point you know they were called in at the end of a multi-billion dollar uh, mega project where things had gone really well uh, for years and we're the best and the brightest minds in civil engineering and environmental cleanup and construction management had all come together uh, to take on a task that people thought was kind of foolish and hopeless, which was cleaning up the dirtiest urban harbor in America. And nobody thought it could kind of be done. And, and so they did that and they took on this job that nobody had done for years, uh, decades, and they did it really well. And at the end, they couldn't get along. And all the, the nerves in those relationships were all frayed among those central parties. And they ended up taking a flyer and bringing in uh, a bunch of divers to come in and, and get them out of a jam. And nobody thought through what they were being, what they were asking these divers to do. And to me, that became the animating question in my mind is how do really smart people get to the point where they can make really bad decisions that put other people's lives on the line? And, uh -huh. uh, and that's why I kept going deeper and deeper into this story. And it wasn't, as you know, from reading the book, it, it, it's not an easy answer. It's, you know, there are some people who are more responsible than others, but the really interesting thing is, is the, responsibility that that spreads around so many different parties but they all were complicit in the end and in, in, in sending five guys into a place they never should have been asked to go in and only three of them making out it alive and those three coming dangerously close to all perishing yeah. down there yeah. and that was one of the most amazing parts too was that you know there were so many things that went wrong up to the point to where everything just, you know, all hell broke loose. 
And uh, as a diver, me and Ken were talking about, we're sitting there reading this and we're just like pulling our hair out. We're yelling at the book, you know, and we're seeing where this is headed. Um, it's amazing that when you're in the middle of it, like you're on the job and say certain things are going, you know, I'm just saying 2020 hindsight, obviously, but the question we had, it's like, how do you let it go that far before you don't say anything? Yeah. Well, there were, um, Ron Kozlowski was, yeah. was the guy who, uh, really, uh, um, called to question what was happening there and walked off the job and tried to get DJ Gillis to walk with him. Uh, and, uh, I, I come away with two things on that. One, when Ron, who's a kind of not very quiet or uh, or um, delicate kind of personality, he was kind of in your face to managers, whoever it was, if he didn't think the job was, was going right. Um, so when he walked off the job, some of the people who were running it breathed a sigh of relief, like, oh, this pain in the ass is gone. Mm. And I like to remind them that it would, they would have been much better off to have a pain in the ass on the job because he could have helped prevent, I think, um, what might have happened. You don't know, of course. And there were lots of other issues on why he walked, including pay and other things. But mm. but in general, uh, sometimes a pain in the ass is, is good to have on the job because it keeps everyone else honest. I'll say the other thing is, uh, and I heard this from divers too, is... Uh, well, I would have just walked off that job. How did these guys stay in this job? It looked bad. Yeah. And I I push back on that because, again, not being a diver myself, but having spent so much time with all the personalities involved, you know, you go into work, is my understanding of this, on jobs where you're putting, it's a little bit of a foxhole mentality. You're putting your life in the hands of the people you're on the job with. So, um if you walk off a job and other people are still on it, uh, imagine the guilt you feel if something goes wrong. And I think that in a case like someone like Haas, uh, who was very close to leaving the, the day before the accident and, and threatened to walk off the job, uh, he has survivor's guilt to this day. He saved the lives of himself and two other divers uh -huh. through his action. and. Uh, and went to incredible lengths to even just bring the bodies back of of uh, their, his fallen partners on this job, uh, and, and has survivors' guilt to this day. Imagine if uh, imagine if he had walked off the job and how he would have felt. Like I could have been there and maybe prevented this. So that's where I hold the responsibility of the people who sent them in, because you're in that case trading on people's uh, devotion to their fellow workers and their team members. And, and you're benefiting from that because you know that they probably aren't going to walk off the job unless everyone walks together mm -hmm. uh, uh, because of that kind of sense of devotion to being there for other people. And so I think uh, that, and uh, the other thing is, you know, the three survivors, DJ, um, Dave Riggs and Haas, um, as you know, from the book, each of them in that crisis, in that horrible situation down there where they could see two guys down and how close they were to all going down, uh, each of them in turn saved the life of everyone else. So they each had a moment 
where they wouldn't have made it out alive had had each person not uh, stepped up in an incredible, miraculous way to do that. And and that tells you something too about both the the um, the synergy of a team working together uh, and the different personality traits and strengths that people bring to a job so that at different points people both hit their lows and someone else stepped in to to help save them uh and uh we're able to work together um collaboratively to get out of there Mm -hmm. i think neil for me reading books like this are really important i mean even if it's not directly related to your field like i mean this is a book about divers and it's directly to me, but like before I got into diving, I used to do a lot of like mountain climbing and I wouldn't just read books about, uh, success, but also reading the, <laughs> the manuals talking about accidents. And I would read those more intently than any book about someone who was successful. And I think for me, reading these books helps like, how can I be a Kozlowski in that moment? And how can each person, if you're not that right now, but be that person who can, be a team member who can think outside the box in that moment and think about what's best for people. Um, and it's really important to like read your books and, and talk about, um, talk about this amongst ourselves and how to be that team player and how to be those people that can be relied on. You know, it's, it's real important. Yeah. I think that's a great point, Kenny. And I think, you know, that's why I was grateful to, everyone from every angle of this job being open with me, you know, I did my work. I I had lots of paperwork and lots of uh, documents to kind of know what had happened. Uh, But what was striking to me is that even the divers who know, who were the only ones who knew what was happening in the tunnel on that awful day, um, they had no idea what happened on the project that led to their being there. They just got a call and said, we got a really cool job, come on to Boston. And they were at various points in their lives where it made sense for them to do this. And so they came. Um, They had no idea about the warnings and the memo saying, if you do this, Mm -hmm. the risk of catastrophe will be infinitely higher. If you pull out all the life support out of this tunnel before you pull out the safety plugs, which was what put put them in this situation to begin with. So, and the and the the project managers who subbed out this job to a small diving company who said you guys solve it we can't figure it out on our own they told me i never stopped to think who we were asking to do this and you know i just thought we're subbing this out we'll get a good contractor they'll know how to do this and uh so that piece of kind of putting it all together, I think, and to to really um, do the forensics on what went wrong is really important, I think, for anything you do. And so I've talked with people about this book and the lessons for if you work for a biotech company, if you work uh, 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 in a, you know, taking kids on a a field trip, you know, like all, all these things that, you know, how how accidents can happen and and how things can get um go sideways pretty quickly uh is and how you can equip yourself to detect those and to try to head those off i think are really important and i and i think that 
piece of uh, this story, uh, which I couldn't have done if people hadn't trusted me to kind of be open, including people who made mistakes in their careers uh, by putting this in motion, uh, trusted me, and I'm grateful for that to be able to show. There's only one person who I describe in the book who um, was not open with me, uh, and I already had all the investigative materials this the project manager harold grope uh, uh so i had what i needed to describe his thing and and clearly he's someone who didn't uh come to terms with his own responsibility in this it seems uh but everyone else at every part of the the, the piece of this came to understand the mistakes and want to learn more about that so that they so that it didn't happen again. And and as and as far as the book, I mean that's that's definitely is a big villain in the book. You know, the way that us as divers see it was that project manager that engineered this catastrophe, you know. And uh he wasn't open to suggestions, he wasn't open to anyone helping him. Um, it seemed like he just was doing his own thing and damn be the consequences. I'm gonna make a name for myself. I'm going to make some money. And uh, he, he didn't see those divers as humans. He saw them as tools. Yeah, I think I think that's a, um, an accurate uh, interpretation of it. And I think if you step back and look at it this way, imagine if during their um, uh, when they were mobilizing for this job up in New Hampshire and they were kind of rehearsing how it would go. And as you say, um, DJ, one of the divers said, Hey, wait, something's not right here. And he shot him down and said, that's above your pay grade, essentially. Uh, imagine if he had stopped and said, instead of being defensive or pulling rank and saying, you know, you're right. There's something that's not right here. Let's all like, put a pause on this and let's, we got a lot of talent here. People who don't necessarily know each other. We've got West coast and East coast divers. Let's figure out how we make this better. Imagine how, what that would have done to the job. One, you're communicating if you're running a job um, that you value people and perspective and, and you'll take criticism. Uh, and two, instead of feeling the weight on your shoulders, which is to please the people above you. Yeah, I got this done. I got this. Yeah, I, I you know, I silenced whatever the noisemakers on my crew were. We're going to have a good. Instead of doing that, you say you then have the collective knowledge and wisdom of five or ten guys uh, who um, can really think creatively and make it better. And then you have the strength of that. That takes confidence. And you know, the good managers in life are the people who are confident enough in themselves to admit when they're in over their heads and to admit they don't have all the answers and try to pull those in. And that that's the emotional intelligence, uh, which is different from the IQ uh, uh, of a really good, smart project manager. Yeah, it's kind of funny because some of the, the most successful jobs are the ones that don't have the engineer ever present or the project manager there on the barge, you know, a lot of times you, you know, get the dive suit, take turns being the dive soup, you know, that's the thing. You have a good seasoned crew of veterans and, you know, you, you know, each other's skill set, and they give you the problem and you figure it out as a diver. That's what we're known for. So reading the book, um, 
and you kind of mentioned it earlier too. These guys just flew in, not knowing what was what, you know, that's what happens. You work for a company and uh, they say, Hey, we got a job, you know, in Arizona, or we got a job in, you know, New York. And you're like, okay, hop on a plane, jump out. You're not going to ask any questions because you don't want to be that guy that's asking a thousand questions. They just want to hear you say, I'm available. I can go work, jump on a plane, fly and go do it. Once you hit the ground, then you're, you know, then you get briefed on the job. So, yeah. Yeah. and as far as the air system is concerned, it's one of those things where as a diver, you don't really question the air system. You just figure, okay, it's a compressor. I've got my umbilical. I'm going to have air. That's not usually the big question. The big question is more technical, how to get the job done and everything. So, um, like me and Kenny, were talking about, we're pulling our hair up out about, you know, the air system and everything. These guys didn't know. They probably just figured, Hey, the air is going to be fine. You know? Um, I, I think it's even worse than that because, uh, when they ask questions about it, uh, and remember this was a job no one had done. They hadn't done anything like this before. No one had done a job like this before this, this kind of experimental, um, mixed gas system, uh, uh, being um, blended right there and breathing right off the uh, uh, and So when they asked questions about it, they were told, this is brand new equipment. You don't know anything about this because it's never been done before. So that's the, the double-edged sword of innovation. You can, uh, when you have challenges, it sometimes propels innovation faster. You know, people can think of creative ways to do things. Um, but if you're telling people not to use the experience that kept them alive in their career so far, uh, because it's so different and exotic that they wouldn't understand it, again, you're denying the the collective power of knowledge and talent uh, and, and good sense uh, that you get from bringing uh, an eclectic group of people in to tackle a really difficult job. And that's where I, I try to uh, because I was so uh, drawn to it was this lesson about um, innovation uh, and safety, like these concepts that I always thought were just good, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we never you think of safety. Mm -hmm. So if like if one safety measure is good, then two must be better and three must be best. But on this job, because there was a fundamental uh, mistake at the center of it, that all the safety measures that they put in place on top of it didn't mean anything because if these divers don't know that they're but the air that they're breathing the blended air is bad because of a central problem that all those layers of safety protection that that harold showed off to the managers above him saying we've got this all taken care of were worse than that because they give you a false sense of security. So safety only matters if you've kind of thought it through. Mm -hmm. And an innovation is only good if you've uh, kind of wargamed it enough to know where the, the pockets of danger are around that innovation. And it certainly isn't good if you're telling people in exchange for doing something no one has ever done before, they can't rely on whatever knowledge has kept them alive to this point. It's just, it's just really short-sighted. And that's what we touched on. Uh, I talked with Kenny yesterday and we were talking about innovation. Um, this, this, this engineer, Harold, uh, we was the innovation for his, 
fame and personal glory? Was it for money saving? Was it for safety? You know, that's kind of questions that I had about, you know, the guy's motive for the innovation. Um, Harold's a fascinating uh, character in that it wasn't money, uh, which is the first thing as a journalist you go to is like the, you know, the old uh, cliche, follow the money. Uh, Have you met him? Um, Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, uh, the thing is, Harold didn't make much money on this job at all. He was making a wage. He didn't have a piece of ownership for this company. Uh, Roger Lowe, who owned the company and kind of gave Harold carte blanche and his regret when the divers called, when Haas called Roger from the site and said, Harold doesn't have this squared away. And Roger called Harold and said, what's going on? And Harold reassured him. Roger said, okay, you know, I've made out well trusting Roger. So I'm just going to trust Roger. He told me he regretted that, but, uh, uh, Roger, I mean, uh, Harold's motivation, it, uh, the deeper I got into it, the more I became convinced that it was all about reputation, that his his sense of self was, and this could be pop psychology, but, I, you know, I've, I've talked to the, all the players enough on this. His self, sense of self was so wound up with this image he had of being the smart guy, the smartest guy in the room, that when yeah. a big company like Kiwit um, can't figure out what to do, they called Harold. And Harold had done a job on Lake Mead before the, coming out to Boston for that job in Nevada. They had a similar problem. They called Harold and it was like, hey, this guy's smart. He figured it out. So a big multinational corporation with lots of smart people turns to you, a little guy in Spokane who's from Canada, and um, and you come through for him, for them, and then they call you again, and you become kind of the, their fixer. Like when it, when we can't figure out what to do, let's get that really smart Canadian guy. Uh, that can be kind of a dangerous thing if 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 because if Harold had to stop and say, "Wait, I don't really have this squared away," as the divers were telling him, uh, then his his uh he has to that the kind of aura that hangs around him as the guy who can solve any problem is, is there and i think that uh you know reputation can be an ego can be just as corrosive as money mm-hmm. and i think that's what happened in this case and during your research on uh on, on Harold and learning more about him. Um, what was his background? Was he a diver for a time or was he just an engineer? Harold had been both a diver and an engineer um, and had done some really um, creative things. Uh, he was um, a, a someone who was, uh, I think, uh, liked innovating and then like going to conferences and talking about the cool things he had done on it. Oh, and I think like being in those magazines, maritime industry magazines. And yeah. Stuff like yeah. That, in fact, the, the way I tracked on Harold when he wouldn't talk to me is I went to a conference and found him there because I knew he was going to be there. <laughs> and, uh, and sure enough, he was, he wasn't even presenting. He was just there hanging out at the conference in Seattle. I just went out there just on a, on a hunch that I'm going to find this guy because That's amazing. this is a place where uh, um, and I, again, so I think that that's part of the problem. And I, you know, I, 
uh, would say to Harold, imagine how much more successful you could have been rather than having this be a, a black mark on your career if you had stopped, pulled the divers together, gotten their collective knowledge, leveraged that all, and came up with a solution that actually worked. And yeah, it might have taken another month on the job, but this job, you know, was years uh, late already. So why this urgency of having another to do month. it within a couple of weeks? What's another day? Just let the air system run and test yeah. it out. That was a huge thing. It's like, had they tested it out for a whole day, let it run, you know, wide open as if they had divers on there, yeah. they would have seen that it would have failed topside. Yeah. And I think, uh, and the other issue uh, that Harold doesn't have a good answer for is, um, why did you send these divers back in when you didn't go in? You know, that's the question on any, any good manager would never ask the, their crew to do something they wouldn't do themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and if you've done that work before, you can't forget what it's like to be asked to go in to do something. Um, of course, as I said before, there's a larger point here is how in the hell did this multi-billion dollar job end up with Harold being asked to rescue it in a matter of weeks? And that's where that much power to where you've got no oversight whatsoever. Well, that's really interesting. And I think what I found is that um, when, when people who are in charge of a, of a big complicated project can't get along and don't have any confidence that they can work out their differences with other parties. Remember, this is at the end of 10 years and all the parties had sued each other at this point. And there've been, you know, claims and counterclaims and accusations. And um, so that's the, the stew in which the divers and Harold were brought in and saying, let's get us out of this mess. And so I think at a crucial time after nine years of making a series of really smart decisions, everyone was just so tired and so hopeless about this job ever finishing that they just closed their eyes and, and offloaded their risk onto this one small diving company mm -hmm. and said, this guy seems to know what he's doing. And he came in and he was really confident and very smart and he is smart. Uh, so let's let him figure it out. And then you get into this other issue where people were worried about, um, you know, this concept in, um, in litigation about if you touch it, you own it. Yeah, so the various parties were like worried about risk. And so everyone was, risk was a hot potato. Everyone was trying to offload risk onto other people. So these parties offloaded the risk onto Norwesco Marine, the, the diving company which offloaded it onto directly onto Harold, who offloaded directly onto five guys being sent in there. And nobody who uh, wanted um, uh, to this thing to come out well was willing to stop and say, hey, wait, because if I ask questions and I mark up this plan and it goes sideways, then I've got some fingerprints on it. So, so various people kind of took a, a flyer at a time when you didn't need, you desperately wanted them not to do that. And I'd like to contrast what happened here with what happened at the end, after the tragedy. Uh, and it was uh, leadership that happened there to say, screw risk. You know, worried about offloading risk is, is 
what got us into this mess with two dead divers. And so that was the head of the, the owner of this job, the water and sewer agency, and who said, we'll front load all the costs and then we'll worry about parceling it out later. But, and that freed up everyone else to say, okay, well, what's the best way to do this rather than what's the way to do this where we have the least risk of losing money, you know, and that made a big difference on liberating people to do things that they should have done from the beginning. Remember you talking about how it, they think that, you know, you talk about this job changing, how the, the process of contracts and, and getting the job done changed. Do you think that's, it's changed in other industries as well, like construction or diving? And has it changed enough? Like one change is great, but when it's so flawed is, you know, most things when they change, they swing up and too much. Is it, is it, are we, are we there enough or we still have some, some ways to go with the culture of, of any industry, heavy industry, uh, marine industry, construction, being set up to allow people to hit the all stop and be able to do what's right and not have all these fines and um, yeah. all these things that, which can be, I've been on job sites for construction and where, you know, we only have two days to finish this section and it's, you, you got to go. And that can be a real dangerous dangerous avenue to go down seems like to me like i get why they put the fines there but it seems like a real dangerous thing when you're involved in heavy industry to have that type of mentality and who gets who feels it the the diver the iron worker the welder that's the person who is going to have to get it there in a day or two so do you think it's it has it has changed it hasn't changed enough it's a great question, and I think you're exactly right that um, uh, that and that was the kind of epiphany for me getting deep into the the litigation piece of this and the contracting piece is I went in thinking, hey, late fees are a good thing, right? Like as a taxpayer, I I don't want a company, you know, being ten years late and and not caring. Um, uh, but late fees or liquidated damages in this case. Uh, did incentivize risky behavior at the end because you know at this point this is a while ago this is um 20 years ago uh it was twenty nine thousand dollars a day that this was late and it was already five years late you know so um uh uh that's a lot of money um and and those fines proportionally would be a lot higher now uh of course uh, as you know, a lot of those uh, fines get negotiated at the end uh, and, and the accountants get involved. And so um, they can look at those dispassionately. Uh, but the frontline workers are the ones who feel them. They don't have the luxury of being able to say, oh, those will get negotiated out later because they don't have the control over that. So that the the kind of pressure um flows down towards the people at the the lowest rung of the org chart, the people on the front lines who are doing the most critical work on there. I think uh, tunneling has always been a kind of really difficult nut to crack for contracting and estimating jobs because you just don't know once you go into the earth what you're going to find. So there's lots of... um, 
contractual risk that's in there. Uh, but I found that the the way in which this contract on this big job was structured was insanity, right? You know, it's the 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 contractor fronts all the money to begin with uh, until the tunnel is done and then start selling it back. So a 10 mile long tunnel, they start selling it in thousand foot uh, chunks from the easternmost, the part out in the ocean, um, moving back towards land. And that's why they have to pull out all the life support uh, in order to get, uh, start making some money back on this job that they've put so much in. Uh, and that again incentivizes bad behavior too, because they should have never pulled out the life support in this system. Yeah. They should have thought creatively as they did after the tragic accidents to figure out how to do this. You can be creative and innovative and safe uh, if you can remove these uh, uh, the really detrimental forces of pressure and um, risk and risk avoidance that can really uh, get you down bad paths fast. Yeah. And earlier I, I called a, I always call your book trapped under the sea, a diving book. Um, the only thing is that they're never, you know, in the water, you know, they're under the water and under the yeah. sea, but um, it's, I call it a diving book, but it's not really a diving book. It's a construction, you know, tragedy. Um, unfortunately the uh yeah they they, they just use the divers I'm, darn it i just lost my thought there i'm gonna have yeah, to cut so that I, out in the editing. Say, while you're thinking of that thought i'll just say yeah. the um um yeah they were why were the divers sent in uh to this job uh it was because there was no oxygen in in this 10 mile long tunnel hundreds of feet below the floor of the ocean and um uh they were the ones who knew how to do like you guys know how to do risky construction work in an area where you have to bring in your own air right so the, yeah, the logic like the cowboys of the trade thinking though. those you know that that would be transferable uh but uh but it was asking everybody on that job who was come it came to that job to do something that they hadn't been asked to do before in their careers um, and so that i think could um you know put everyone in a bind and i just want one more thing that kenny you mentioned before about the lessons of this and i want to um mention that um this is true of dj riggs and haas the surviving divers um, particularly Haas, who continued in his work as a commercial diver. Um, what he told me is, and what I heard from other people who work with him, was after this accident, he saw what can happen if you just trust the people above you that have figured it out and not really demanding um, evidence that everyone's kind of thought things through and pulled people in collaboratively so the diver the surviving divers got a settlement out of this it was a, a fraction whatever it should have been but what Haas told me is he used that as his walk off the job money so he was going to be a leader on any job he saw and 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 people uh came to see that who worked with him on jobs that he would hold the people accountable uh if he didn't feel things were were um 
fully uh, thought through, he would demand that it were, or he'd walk. And if he walked because he had such leadership on jobs and people respected him, others would walk. And that had real power in it. And so that was a very uh, important, I think, result from this. He was able to do that personally. With the book, my hope was that people read this from every angle on jobs and think about who they're not thinking about when they're making decisions, whether that's the construction manager or the project manager or the actual diver, thinking about someone else and, and, and making sure that things are squared away. And if they're not demanding that they are. Yeah. And one of the other sad parts about this job too, is that this was a union job. This wasn't, you know, an off the books, non-union cash job or anything like that. This was a job that had a representation by the union. Um, there should have been a job steward there on that job at that time. Um, did you have any interactions with the uh, local pile drivers union there in Boston? Yeah. And I have to tell you the, um, I got to know them very uh, well and um, uh, think very highly, highly of uh, there's a guy named Danny Cuse who um, uh, was the business agent on this job and, um, and cared deeply about, the workers and and he pushed for accountability. It was a whole team of people after the accident who really did. Part of it was that he demanded to see things and went and saw. And that was what I was talking before about Harold had an answer for everything. Every question he asked, he had an answer for it. Oh, we have three safety um, things. If this doesn't work, this works. If this doesn't work. And he said, I didn't have to, I never thought I had to ask basic questions on this job, like how are you going to plug in the uh, the blender and the monitor on this so you know, like basic, mm -hmm. basic Oof. fundamental jobs. And that's what Harold didn't have answers for. He had all the answers for the, the, the bells and whistles, but not the fundamental stuff at their core. And so uh, Danny realized at the end, you know, after this tragedy that you it, it's kind of like if you hire a contractor to, to build a deck on your house, you ask very basic questions generally, like, where are you going to set up your saw horses? Where are you going to plug in? I don't have a working outlet here. What's your out? You know, you ask these basic questions. The strange phenomenon happens in mega project construction is the bigger a job gets, the less likely people are to ask common sense questions because they don't want to look foolish. And they, they, they we all have a sort of sense in our minds of, well, it couldn't be a multi-billion dollar job and nobody saw, thought to think, how are we going to energize the source for this device, right? Someone thought of that. I don't want to look like a fool in a meeting asking that. And the willingness to look like a fool is a really uh, a powerful force for good in protecting people's lives. You know, as a journalist, as I told you, I start as a generalist and have to uh, work hard to understand fields I don't know going in, but I don't mind looking like a fool in the beginning. I don't mind asking really basic questions. So I'm used to that uh, because I'm always starting from scratch on something. Uh, I don't like looking like a fool at the end because <laughs> it shows I didn't do the work. So, uh, but I like asking very basic questions on there. And so I tend to do that in life in general too. When I'm talking with people, just ask, uh, I never realized how important it is to ask those really basic questions. And even 
you know, the innovative solution at the end that they found for sucking all the bad air out of the tunnel, uh, which started in a blue sky meeting uh, with the guy, Doug McDonald, who, who uh, um, ran the uh, uh, NWRA, the, the owner of this project, the agency, um, he threw that out there as a kind of, hey, would, would there be any way that we could, or instead of pumping good air in, which is what they were trying to do from the VR Island side, is there any way we can suck of the bad air out of the end of the tunnel? And he said, I almost thought, you know, I'm a lawyer. I don't, I, I don't know anything about this. I'm not an engineer. Uh, but he was willing to look stupid. And then some smart people said, no, that's actually a pretty good idea. Let's see. And then they figured it out. And, and sure enough, that created a genuinely innovative solution that I think uh, advanced knowledge in the field by probably about five years, just because they had to figure out a, a solution to do that, that would work. That, just, that was crazy too, that they could have just uh, done what Black Dog was saying and take a semi-truck full of HP air down in the tunnel. And that would have been better than what they ended up doing, you know? It would have been better, but I, but that plan wouldn't have worked either. You know, the more I went into it, it just, uh-huh. um, it, it, it just wasn't, it's that, that tunnel, it's remember it started 24 feet, but then it really choked down okay. at the end and, and, and just getting, getting it in and moving it around there. I don't think it, it, it wouldn't have worked on it. it. It was, it was closer to a good solution mm-hmm. in the, the smoke and mirrors uh, that they ended up going with, but, uh, but it needed more, more, um, yeah. And yeah, it just seemed like science fiction blending liquid oxygen. Like when you think liquid oxygen, you're thinking of the movie, the abyss, you yeah. know, I, I was kind of wondering at, at that point that Harold started mentioning how he's going to do it. Did people just get dazzled and they were like, Oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to be on the cutting edge. Um, you know, I, I think that's it. I think it was the combination of people who were fatigued and wanted to believe the solution was farther along and in better shape than it was and kind of closed their eyes halfway and said, sure, go with it, guy. And he had kind of projected such confidence at a time when everyone was so tired and, and uh, kind of hopeless. Uh, so there was like this steroid injection into this job of here's a guy with answers. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and he was clearly in over his head, but uh, was not, confident enough to admit that. And so that is a kind of dangerous admixture with those uh, forces at work there because uh, you don't have the controls and the uh, margin of error to uh, to extricate yourself from something that's not going to end well. Mm. Were you going to say something there, Kenny? No, I was, yeah, I was agreeing. I, I, I think about we were talking about people having the ability to, you know, look stupid and look silly. And that comes from both sides of the culture of our work is, you know, being a good apprentice, but also, um, um, being a good mentor as well. It takes both sides of the, of the, of the workforce to be able to have a healthy work environment that promotes this type of innovation and, uh, taking in ideas and keeping a job safe and moving forward in the best way possible. So I like where you talked about how 
I read this book and I just see it as, oh, this can help people just like me. But what you just said is talking about, it can help the project managers, the company owner, mm-hmm. all areas of this, of our, of our industry can read your book and take that into stride, whether it's the highest person reading about, you know, DJ and Riggs and Haas and how it affected them. And this, they're not just a, in a, a million, you know, a few million dollars on the accounting budget, but how it affects people. And, um, to someone like me who is going to maybe think about this and be like, it's time to talk, time to speak up about this, or even the middle manager, which can be the hardest position in the world, being that middle person who has the triangle above them and the triangle below them, that funnel point being like, that's sometimes the hardest position to be. So, um, you know, that's kind of what, what, you know, tap was kind of stuck in that little middle spot. Yep. Yeah. So many pressures going through this. I like, I kept reading this, like, who am I in this book? Mm -hmm. Am I, who, how could I be, who am I going to be in this situation? And, and that was, you know, a big deal. Not a big deal, but that was kind of where it struck me. And so that's a that's a really great point about and I appreciate that about the empathy of trying to see where you fit in this um and and that was my goal for not making it so kind of like uh these are the good guys and these are bad guys I mean clearly there's heavier responsibility on certain people like Harold uh but but the larger issue is just what what could have each what how each person might have uh, done their role to help contribute to heading off this tragedy. Uh, uh-huh. I'll mention just one thing, which again, I admire people who try to grow and learn from things regardless of what they do. And, and the first step for doing that, which I, I sadly don't think Harold has ever taken is, is you take ownership for your mistakes and you um, you admit them, and and you re, you commit yourself to not making those mistakes again, and to sharing with them so that other people can't do that. That's the goal of the whole book. Uh, and someone like Dave Corkum, who I'm not sure if you remember, he was the construction manager in the tunnel. So he was a middle manager working for the CM on behalf of the owner. Uh, and he said to me, I sat at these meetings for years and I um, knew the games that the contractor was playing and how we were going to end up paying for these things. And I did my job to protect the client, in this case, the owner, from taking on risk that that they didn't own in the contract. Uh, but he's one who told me, I never stopped to think when when I said we have you have to do this keyword you're the contractor you own the risk here we don't own it it's yours you figure it out you bid it you own it uh, he said I was doing my job to protect my employer which worked for the owner to protect the owner that was our job to protect their interest and look out for them but I never stopped to think what my decision uh contributed how my decision contributed to then those five guys being sent in 
never stop to think who these five guys are, what their lives are like, what their families are like, what we were asking them to do. And I should have. And so Dave, to his credit, um, gives this book to people on jobs. So Dave is a fascinating guy. He was a geologist who became a, a tunnel uh, manager who got involved with so much uh uh, construction law while he was a tunnel manager that he was going to night school at the time of this job then became a lawyer successful lawyer in construction law and then went back into tunneling after 10 years in the law he's like i've had enough of uh, law i'm going back in and was working on the a, a big job in um in the dc area uh but he would give people on those jobs a copy of the book young people coming up and say read it even though uh you know it documents mistakes he made but he said, like, you need to know what I didn't realize at that time. You can do your job well on behalf of your client and yet fail the larger system of humanity around that. And that's a really interesting kind of nuanced, but I think very uh, morally uh, impressive stance to take, uh, regardless of what happened up until that point. It's kind of what you do with that. And so when this book came out, instead of having a traditional kind of book launch party or other things, we just, uh, this was well before COVID, so we could have parties, and we brought everyone together into Boston, the divers, um, the, the lawyers, uh, the uh, project managers, uh, the engineers, uh, the investigators. Uh, we flew people in and just had everyone come in and had a party. And it was a little bit risky because some of these people hadn't seen each other since the accident. Uh, some of the divers hadn't been to Boston since the accident um, or the litigation and the, the lawsuits that happened after that. And there were a lot of um, frayed uh, feelings about this, understandably so. And I didn't know putting these people together, but I'd spent enough time with them and I, I appreciated um the trust that everyone had given me on there and it was a pretty incredible night uh so dave went up and talked with the divers who he never met before you know like and and cut to bond with them at one point um uh tim nordine one of the divers tim uh billy juice and tim nordine uh were the divers who were tragically killed on this job um so Tim's widow, Judy Milner, a really remarkable woman, came up to me and she said, I, Neil, I want you to introduce me to Doug McDonald. Doug McDonald was the guy I told you who ran the whole sewer, water and sewer agency on this. And um, I said, okay. I didn't know why she wanted me to introduce him. I hoped it was going to be a good interaction and not a bad one. I really had gotten to know Judy well and really respected the way she thought. And her whole point in this is she's a physician. And when there's a an avoidable death in medicine, you do uh, a full kind of team meeting where you try to figure out what went wrong and learn from it. Mm. Um, and she wanted that to happen in this case and that she realized at some point when the lawsuits that that couldn't happen in the legal system. Uh, so I had a feeling that, you know, that, that it would be a good interaction, but I wasn't sure. So I brought Judy over to, you know, this loud party right on the 
overlooking the beautiful clean harbor that we have now in Boston, thanks to these guys. And um, I said, Doug, this is Judy. She wanted to talk to you. And I think I could see he looked a little nervous, like, well, am I being ambushed? And she said, I just want to thank you. And he said, thank me. You remember, he's the head of the agency that um, uh-huh. led to her husband's death in this case. And she said, uh, and she told him, she said, all the thing after Tim died, the only thing I wanted to come of this was that people learn from this and, and it never happened again. I had a great lawyer uh, who I love, but I realized the legal system couldn't give us that. It was the, the system just isn't conducive to that. She said, and so the next greatest hope was this book. And you were very honest with Neil about this. And so now that's in there and people can read about this and learn from those mistakes. And so I want to thank you for that because you've given me a gift there. And it was a just a beautiful moment. And Doug told me it was one of the most powerful moments he's had in his career ever um, to have this weight of this um, feeling of guys that were lost in a job, killed on this job, uh, and then to have the widow thank him for uh, it. And uh-huh. it, was, it. It made me very... Um, happy to just be a, an observer to that, but that's kind of the special person that that Judy was. But that's the hope of this: is you can only learn from it if you're honest, and everyone's yeah. honest. And now, this is one of those stories where, if you wouldn't have uh, written this book, I mean, would would this story have been forgotten? You know, a couple of years later. I, I mean, was it forgotten at the point to where you started researching and writing? Yes, that's the interesting thing. And that's one of the reasons I got going on this is uh, I didn't remember this story at all. You know, I grew up in Massachusetts. I'm a journalist. I actually was not. I was living in New York uh, for a couple of years and, and it was right at the time of this accident. So I assumed it was just I missed this. But then when I became aware of it and then stopped, started asking uh, other journalist friends about it. Nobody knew what I was talking about. And I was like, how could something this big and important be forgotten? Uh, and, uh, you know, I first found out about it at a kid's birthday party when my oldest daughter was, uh, you know, a little girl. And I was just chatting with someone who was a friend from the neighborhood as a lawyer. And he was in a late stage deposition of one piece of this case. And he started telling me about it and Humvees and the tunnel and oxygen. And I said, what are you talking about? It sounded like science fiction to me. I had no idea what he was talking about. And it was a little embarrassing as a journalist from Boston to not have any idea with this. Come to find out nobody knew about this. He said, check the, check the archives at the Boston Globe where I worked. And so I did. And there were, um, there were three stories about this. Never appeared on the front page. Um, uh, and, uh, fairly small stories. Divers never spoke. Nobody had any idea what had actually happened in that tunnel. In fact, after I wrote about it, the guy who was quoted in that article, the spokesperson for the water and sewer agency said, I'm the one who was giving out information. I had no idea what would have happened there because the, the divers had never talked, you know, so they had very basic information. Uh, so yes, that, that kind of, I think uh, hopefully this uh, prov- provides a kind of record of of this case that both for for posterity about what happened here, and as you were saying before, Kenny, so other people can learn from it and and draw 
applications to it. You know, one of the, when I've talked about this to companies sometimes who have to have safety, uh, you know, sessions, uh, and a lot of that is, as you guys know, it's just box checking, you know, we have to have a safety thing. And so, and guys' eyes are rolling or they're on their phones for an hour and no one's paying attention. Um, but I've gone and talked about this and sometimes with um, the divers, Haas and, and DJ and Riggs have all done uh, sessions with me, talking to companies. And I can't tell you how how meaningful it is for me when guys will come up to me with a dog-eared version of the book because they had to read the book with circles on it. And like clearly, and, and they'll say, I haven't read a book since high school and I didn't really read it in high school either. But uh, uh, But they could relate and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't anything really that I did. It was the power of the stories, the authentic people at the center of that, that they could relate to. Everyone's had a DJ-like person with them on a job before, or a Hoss, or a Riggs, or a Timmy, or a, uh, a Billy. And um, and here you could see, or as you pointed out, a Harold on, yeah. on, your, yeah. on your job. Uh, and, and you could relate to that and also see the downstream consequences if if you're not aware of uh what can happen on that and that's the most amazing thing of this book and that's why i'm so excited to have you on today and uh and it's i didn't read your book until about like six years ago so your book had already been out for a while you know somebody else told me word of mouth so hopefully the word of our mouths can we can get other people to read this book as well and uh it's it's a timeless story that you're going to learn from and um like we said before your writing styles is is so good because you can put yourself on the crew like we've been on these jobs before to where we do have those you know personalities there and it could be any one of us hopefully we're not in a tragic story um but you know we can definitely put put ourselves there um now you also mentioned some speaking you, you do a uh, public speaking still for uh, companies and events? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I do that. Um, you know, I started doing that with the book, um, just about the book itself, going out and telling the story. And it was very interesting to hear from people uh, about kind of using this as authentic safety training mm -hmm. rather than box checking safety training, where people could actually relate to real life uh consequences of decisions and and how that has affected that and so that has been uh really uh a rewarding piece of this for me is to be able to uh then have people look at safety in a different way and and have a little bit of um billy and tim in their minds or or dj haas riggs harold uh, uh tap whoever it is as you said ken whoever you see yourself in that and sometimes it, it might be a different day. You might see yourself relating with another piece of this. Or if you're a soup on a job, you might have to feel more like the middle of that, um, those two meeting triangles, right? Uh, but yeah, that, that's, that's been helpful. I, I'll tell you, uh, you know, as a, as a journalist, uh, you, you get a kind of a thick skin because to, if people don't, uh, like, you know, sometimes you have to write about things that people don't want to. As I told you, when I approached everyone on this job, no one wanted to talk to me initially. Um, but 
but sometimes you get some kind of really meaningful reactions. And to me, that's, that's particularly um, uh, the most meaningful is hearing what Judy wanted, Tim's wife, for people to learn from that, and then seeing it in action, seeing people actually uh, connect with the guys and the and the women at this story. I want to talk when we have a, a second about the investigative side of this too. Uh, uh, that that they relate to that, um, and then they can hopefully avoid the mistakes uh, that led to these tragic deaths. And the most kind of magical reaction I got uh, was um, I got an email. Uh, after the book had come out and the subject line was you saved my marriage. I was like, geez, how often do you get an email like that? You know, right. Holy Usually holy. it's the opposite. You ruined my marriage. You wrote about my husband, you know, but, um, uh, and I was like, what, what, you know, what can this possibly, be? is this spam? Uh, but no, it was someone who had contacted me through my publisher. And so I knew it had been kind of vetted on there and it was a woman. Um, and it's actually, it's, it's hanging on my office wall um, uh, because it said, uh, I've been married to a diver for years now. And I have to say I was done. You know, I was done with the kind of emotional distance after the job, uh, the kind of the, the uh, feeling like he wasn't really there uh, and not wanting to talk about what happened on his jobs and he goes away and other things on that. And I was out, I was like ready to walk. And then someone told me to read this book and I read it and I found myself, I started it and I read it in one sitting cause I could relate with it. She said, I finished the book. My husband was on a job a couple hours away. I went to his favorite donut place. I got a dozen donuts and I started driving four hours to the job site. I went to the job site. I gave him a donut and I kissed him and I said, now I understand. Um, and it was really kind of, I still get a little chills from it, you know, because it's like, that's a, a personal story. Again, and that to me is, you know, I'm the intermediary in that case. That's the, the, the trust that the guys had with me to tell their story so that they can be genuine and other people can relate to it and see. Uh, and uh, I hope this couple is still together. Um, uh, but uh, that was pretty powerful to, to see that even someone married to a diver for years could get new wisdom into her own life and her own marriage okay. through learning about um, these very real uh, impressive guys at the center of this book. That was funny that one of the first things that they told me, uh, my dive instructor told me before, you know, started dive school is like, are you sure you want to do this, Ramondo? Your wife didn't sign up for this. There's a reason why they're, there's, there's a reason why divorce is right next to diver in the dictionary. <laughs> well, that's the rule, right? You never tell your loved ones what you see on a job, right? I mean, it's yeah. like, but that, that ends up being, you know, psychologically, you carry it's an addicting a addicting trade too. You know, you get that itch when you're on shore to get back out on that job, you know? And uh -huh. uh, again, that's what kind of fuels you. And I'm sure that's what fueled, you know, this crew to do something that wasn't in their wheelhouse that they weren't supposed to be doing as yeah. a diver. I call this a diving book, but you know, the, the, the divers never went underwater yeah. or in the water. Um, that's the thing is that this, uh, this wasn't their specialty. So already you're, you know, high risk. Yeah. And I would say, um, 
you know, the joke that I heard was that a pile driver would give up a, a, a one year well-paying um, uh, pile job for two weeks to swim in the puddle, you know, like that, that, you know, that, that there's a, there's a, an appeal of being in the water, right. That um, even a more stable, well-paying job, can't kind of hold the candle to and here I've done that several times <laughs> I've, I've left, yeah it's kind of it's kind I've of everybody's mistress jobs it's everybody's mistress to their marriage yeah and uh it's uh and in this case it was something even more seductive than that it was like you're gonna you're gonna be able to have done a job that no no one in your field has ever done before you yeah. can dine on this stories about this for years. Uh, you know, we went in there and we did this and we rescued this project. And so, yeah, that's some heavy stuff. Uh, I wanted to mention, I, I alluded to it before, just before we, we, we wrap up, um, is uh, um, the, the um, investigators in this case were incredibly impressive, wonderful people whose lives changed because of this as well too. Um, I mentioned uh, Danny Cuse and Dave Woodman. They were the, the the local guys in charge of the local pile drivers union. Um, they reached out uh, to try to get some accountability on these cases about the, the both the corporate and the individuals. Uh, and two incredible women stepped forward on this job who I'm still been in regular touch with and and. Very, very sadly, uh, one of them just passed away yesterday. Um, uh, and um, uh, that's Joan Parker, uh, who was uh, the director of safety for the attorney general's office in Massachusetts. She and Mary McCauley was the, the police detective. Uh, they became this like Thelma and Louise tag team of working to get answers and to make sure these deaths uh, were not just uh, swept under the rug, uh, that 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 people learned from this and were held accountable for the mistakes that led to Billy and Tim's deaths. Um, and they're just kind of remarkable. And again, people who came to this not knowing really about diving, who became expert in it uh, and became uh, so motivated for this and i was uh to to get answers uh for people they'd never met before uh they were really committed to justice in this case however that might look whatever it might look like they couldn't bring these guys back to life but they wanted people to to be held to full accountable so they wouldn't make the same mistakes again and other people wouldn't die kind of like what i was saying tim's wife had really wanted um as had um Billy's family, who I'm um, still in touch with as well, too. Um, his mom, Olga, and his dad, Bill, and his sister, Jolene, um, and his fiance, Michelle. You know, these some kind of wonderful people on this. Uh, but, uh, um, but Joan was a remarkable, just kind of fearless, uh, bright, and dogged person, she ended up leaving the attorney general's office um, when she found if we can't prosecute a case like this, uh, then what are we doing in this? Um, and she just had kind of moral courage and just a wonderful, funny person as well, too. So um, 
we lost a, a pretty remarkable woman yesterday on there. So a, a group of that investigative group, we would get together at least once or twice a year. Uh, and that's Mary and Joan and Dave and, and Dan, uh, the people who were pushing for, for accountability at the end of this. Yeah, that's the thing. Did, did, uh, did we ever get the accountability that you and I as a reader were looking for? Or is it? No, we didn't. But you know what? Um, uh, the um, I mentioned two things on that. One is often you see a lot of things where lawyers are, you know, bad actors in cases. I was really impressed with all the lawyers. I dealt with this, the, the lawyers on behalf of the families and uh, Billy and Tim and the um, survivors. Uh, really cared a lot about this and stayed kind of involved in, in this and, and were really the first wave of people trying to get answers for this. Um, and then, um, you know, Joan Parker uh, created a path for uh, holding people and corporate ent entities accountable for manslaughter. I mean, really what this is happening here, and, and they're very complicated cases to um to nail and there are all these political forces at work that she went up against but she created a, a pattern that didn't happen in this case but it happened more recently a couple of years ago when there were some construction deaths um and and real uh, negligence on the part of flagrant negligence on the part of the corporate interest interest who put those workers there uh and and they were held accountable. Uh, and I see a direct line from kind of the work that Mary did um, years earlier to to create this pathway uh, for accountability for that. So uh, uh, it, it it didn't happen in this case. Although I think uh, this case has its role on its own, which is kind of sharing the story and the learning experience for this. Hopefully, that makes people. Um, think twice about cutting corners in in other cases, uh, and it and uh, as I said, it it, it created um, it made a path for for future prosecutions, which we've now seen come to pass. And 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 I really hope again people read this and 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 uh, and learn from it. I know an old foreman that I worked under. He you know I was a new apprentice. He told me he said, "Hey man, you know, because we were talking about like you know doing risky cowboy stuff." He's like. That contractor doesn't give a crap about you. Of course, he learned it. You know, he used more colorful language. But uh, he's like, that contractor doesn't give a crap about you. They kill you or me. They're just going to close up shop and they're going to open up under a different name. Um, unfortunately, that's what one of these dive companies did, right? Uh, I think uh, Norwesco is now AUS. And, you know, given, again, I'm not saying that they, you know, that they purposefully did this, but it happened under their watch. And, you know, that's just something we have to keep in the back of our heads as divers. When we're, you know, working on the job site, we've got to remember, you know, we got people that we want to get home to, you know, and uh, we got workmates that we don't want to see hurt or, uh, or, you know, or dead. Um, yeah. I think that's exactly right. Amanda. So we want to thank you for coming on again. This is, I, I mean, this is huge for me personally to talk to you and get to know you and meet you. Um, what are some other books that you're writing right now? That's Yeah. So um, I'm not working on a, a new book right now. Yeah, I'm circling around the next one uh, just because I'm, I'm uh, doing some so much right now with speaking. Um, but uh, 
the the first book I did was called The Assist, uh, which was a kind of completely different world uh, about uh, high school basketball and kind of urban education and sort of trying to move ahead uh, that way. Um, so I like, uh, you know, uh, my general work is, is magazine length stories and I like moving on before it gets boring. Uh, uh, and learning about things, but then getting to to move on. Um, and so with the books, it has to be something I really am fascinated with and want to stay with and live with for years. Because as, as Haas pointed out at our book party, um, he said, uh, five years, you sure don't write fast, do you? <laughs> and and uh, uh, it's true. I know I'm a slow writer. So uh, it's an occupational hazard on there. So if I'm going to take on a book, I have to know I really want to do it and care about it. And then be with it because in some ways I never leave a book when I do it. The first book I, you know, involved in a nonprofit that works with uh, low-income first-generation students trying to get them um, through college. If they started college and didn't finish, go back and finish. Um, so I'm still connected with people there. Um, with with the trapped under the sea, I'm still, as you know, connected with all the the people involved in in that and trying to spread the word about that. So. For me, it's like a it's like a marriage, a book. <laughs> so you, you know, I'm a I'm a serial monogamist at least. I kind of just want to. Uh, <laughs> well, that's good. I, I mean, that's because you care about the subject you're writing about. It's not like you're, you know, it doesn't seem like you're just pushing books out or anything to make an income. You know, given yeah, no, you know, it's nice <laughs> to make an income, but you know, you're kind of. I think you're more of a diver than you think. You know, you want those short jobs. <laughs> yeah. Move on to the next interesting one. You don't want to go on that freeway job for five years. You know, that's right. Exactly. Yes. Maybe it's maybe that's kind of washed over me. Yeah. The, <laughs> I'm an above ground diver. Yeah. There you go. Um, so Kenny and I. Um, we're we're gonna take a take a shot for uh, Billy and Tim. Um, don't know if you drink or wanted to get something to share with us, but uh, we're kind of kind of close it out with a shot for uh, for Billy and Tim. Oh, I'll do the same. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. We'll pause for a second and uh, yeah, give me some time. Get a shot. <laughs> All right. I've got my. Uh, this is Boston uh, Harbor mug. You can see the. All, uh, oh, nice. Guys, nice. it's clean because of them. Well, here's the Billy and Tim. Fair winds and following seas are friends. Yeah. Billy and Tim. Yeah, you know, I had one question for you before anything we wrap up. I was one of my questions I wrote out was from your experience in interviewing these guys and doing what you do now with with safety, you know, talks with companies and people. How do you just how what is your what's your advice for someone who's who's new who but might see something that they just need to stop and I mean, they talk about job sites talk about that they talk about if you see something say something if you yeah. see something say something but for someone who's new or someone who's low on a totem pole so i would say i'd say um two things on that ken first is all the companies that have a stop work order at any point you know the, who who say that at any point from a tender can can stop a whole job all if they see something say something um mean it don't just have something do you have a, a culture or do you have a policy because a lot of companies i met had policies yeah, so i good. asked the companies when i talked to the ceos or the people um i say do you have a, a you know a stop work culture um and they say what do you mean i said well what's the last what would you do the last time 
the tender stopped a job for you, a really costly job. Did you um, feature them in your monthly newsletter uh, as someone who took a stand? Because if you did, you're, uh, you've got a culture uh, that respects safety. But if, like a lot of companies, you have a policy that says that, but then you give them a bunch of grief or you move them off a job and say, oh, this kind of noisemaker or troublemaker, then you've got a policy that doesn't mean anything. And I remind them on this job, yeah. prior to Deer Island, out in Lake Mead, Nevada, where, where Harold was there, where Haas and Riggs were both working for Norwesco out there, no, Haas saw something that wasn't right on a job, and he let people know about it. And you know what happened? Haas was moved to another job. They didn't fire him. They didn't tell him he couldn't say it, but they just said, get him onto another part of the plan. Get him out of here. Uh, and, and that's the worst possible thing. If you're not going to have a safety culture, then don't even have a safety policy. Like, you know, put your money yeah. where your mouth is on it. And I think what I have seen and it really impresses me is a few of the companies I've seen really do have a culture. They've seen this because if you're smart, you realize today the costs of losing a worker on a job are enormous, as they should be. Uh, the human emotional toll is enormous. So why shouldn't the bottom line pay for it? But your insurance premiums, your the cost of stopping a work, the bad PR that happens, it's really so really smart managers know that the way to avoid preventable deaths is to have a safety culture. And that means you really advertise and promote and applaud people who aren't cranks on a job. You don't want to have everyone just putting their hand up because they're tired that day um, and don't feel like doing something. But you want to have people empowered to really um, stop mm -hmm. something if they see something wrong. Yeah, and that's where the foreman have to step up and the lead man has to step up and, and say something. Because it's really hard for that apprentice because he doesn't know much, you know, or the tender that's on there doesn't know, you know, much. And they're just going mm -hmm. by common sense, you know. Yeah. So it, 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 if if you're a company and the tender stops a job and you put them, you feature them on the company newsletter, guess what? You're going to have more tender stop jobs if they see something wrong because they'll see there's no... um. Uh, detriment to doing that and that's what you want and because you're empowering all those people to be your eyes and ears on jobs and and they can avoid that and smart companies are doing that now so i think find a smart company um find people who are leaders like the hosses of the world now or even the kozlowskis of of the time of and kind of watch them and 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 get the strength of numbers of people doing that. Um, if you're on a job and you see someone who stopped that, you know, see what you can do to applaud that, uh, even if it gives some grief uh, to the people around you to kind of let people see the bigger picture. And I think just as a, as a human being, and this comes from a non-diver perspective, is just about time. It's just thinking. And I think about this all the time when I'm late for something and I'm on the highway and I'm speeding, if you factor in, I'm going to get pulled over by the cops, just the time of getting pulled over by the cops, you know, what is that, 15 minutes? Forget your insurance surcharge. Just the 15 minutes of getting pulled over by the cops is going to eat away any extra minute or two you had from speeding there, you know? And that's what's true about pushing something beyond a reasonable speed on a job. 
is you're going to have some, someone's going to get, you know, a broken finger or something and that's going to shut the job, delay the job. Um, and if it's a death, like in the case here, so they, they were, they were, everyone was under pressure. We have to have this done in two weeks, two weeks, two weeks, two di divers lives are changed or they're dead and, and everyone else's uh, lives are changed immeasurably from this. And then what happens? That tunnel is a crime scene for a year. There's literally people <laughs> on it. Nobody's allowed into it for a year. So that is a reminder that these artificial deadlines are are just that. They're artificial and they can really be dangerous if you put too much faith in them. So so think as much as you can if you're young on the job about that wider perspective. And and if you're if you're an older person on the job, more experienced, mentor those younger workers and 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 really show them the the way to do it because that's that's how they'll live longer on the job, and you'll all be able to retire from it. And that's a key going home, going home safe that. in one piece, you know. So thanks yeah. a lot for coming on, you know, spreading awareness, and um, the book is amazing. Trapped under the sea. If you guys can get a copy of it, get it read it. Um, audio book is great too. Uh, it's, it's it definitely should be a required reading for a diver and construction worker. So, <laughs> uh, you mind if I gave a little shout out to DJ Riggs and hogs, if you guys ever yes. hear this, I mean, we're with you guys. Um, I was reading you guys' stories and yeah, we could felt everything. I tried to feel everything those guys felt. And, uh, I was gonna give a shout out to what amazing people that they pulled themselves out of that. And, uh, what an incredible story that was to, to, I mean, yeah, it's hard afterwards, but I want to let those guys know that they're not alone. And if people like them, that they aren't alone. And if you need any help and if you're having problems, just always reach out to people around you and uh, you're never alone. So. That's great. Kenny, thank you for thank doing you. that there. Um, Haas, DJ and Riggs are really fine guys and, uh, and, you know, really remarkable people and so uh i'm glad you did that and and to them and to billy and tim uh they're um they're people i feel lucky to have met and to have been welcomed into their lives and so uh, i'm really uh happy for more people to know about them yeah. and and what fine guys they are all right guys thanks appreciate so much that. appreciate you bringing their story Appreciate it. All right. Uh, great talking to you. Take care. Thanks okay. again. All right. Thank you, Neil. Bye. You too.